Good morning. You guys doing all right today? Good. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, we're going to be looking in Philippians uh, this morning, Philippians chapter 2. I've been looking forward to, to preaching this passage. This is a really good one, uh, and it's, it's got some good stuff in it. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. And I'm using the CSB, it's, it's the, the Pew Bible, which you can't grab, but if you're, you've got a tablet or phone and you want to follow along in the same version, it's the CSB. I'll read the passage here, I'll say a prayer for us, and, and we'll walk through the, through the text together. Starting in verse 1 of uh, Philippians 2, Paul says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming this, the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Say a prayer with me. Lord, thank you for this powerful passage this morning. Lord, thank you for the example and humility of Christ. I pray that as we read this passage, you would grow us together in unity as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> uh, most people at some point in their life have been fans of a band that broke up, right? You could probably think of a band right now, uh, and maybe it was just devastating to you that this band broke up because you loved them. Uh, and there's one that I was thinking about, and it, it's one of the most significant band breakups in history and involved who is arguably and who I would say is one of the greatest bands in history, and that's the Beatles. To this day, they are the highest selling artist of all time. They have the most number one hits of all time. They have the most covered songs of all time. They spent 10 years together as a band, and, and they won seven Grammys uh, during their 10 years together. And, and whether you like the music or not, whether that, that's your style or not, it's undeniable that this band was great. So if they were great, why did they break up? They were only together for 10 years, which that's really not a long time, especially when, when you consider all that they did as a band and the influence that they made in music. And I was able to, to read a few different articles on why the band split up, and I was looking for, you know, you kind of story right and I was looking for that uh, and what I found out was that that just it really wasn't the case it really wasn't just one reason uh, for why they broke up there wasn't some big dramatic one thing that happened that that they split up over 
things have been going sour for a few years within their group. Uh, they had difference of opinion musically, spiritually, politically. It just th those things mattered to them, um, and and that's kind of what happened to them as a group. And suddenly, all the earthly things weren't enough for them. The numbers didn't matter. Money they had didn't matter. All the number one hits, it didn't matter. The Grammys didn't matter. None of those things mattered. And they could have stayed together. They could have made many more awards, had many more number one hits, made a lot more money, much more success as a band. But to them, the things that they disagreed on, the things they were upset about, it was too great. So they went their separate ways. And I, as I was thinking about band breakups and the Beatles breaking up, it, it made me think about uh, church issues and churches breaking up. And like the Beatles, you're rarely going to see a church split up over one big dramatic thing. And there may be, there may be a big dramatic thing that's sort of the, the nail in the coffin that uh, the disunity and the split up, but the real reason is that it usually isn't just one reason. There isn't some big dramatic thing that's the only reason that caused it. It's almost always a pattern of disunity distributed by members of the congregation over an extended period of time. You get a church that, that met their salvation goals, baptism goals, church attendance goals, Sunday school goals, giving goals, and at the end of the day, still be a church that's not unified even if they're doing those things, which are in fact good things. Numbers aren't what keeps a church unified. A church can have those things. A church can look successful. And at the end of the day, they can still have gossip and slander and grudges and unforgiveness and sin. And what we see in Scripture and in this passage is that Christ, He's not calling us to have X amount of salvations or X amount of baptisms or X amount of money given. But he is implicitly calling every local church to have X amount of people living in unity. If it's 10 people, that's 10 people. If it's 10 people in a church, that's 10 people that, that Christ is calling to live in unity together. If it's a church of 300, that's 300 people Christ is calling to live in unity together. If it's 3,000, that's 3,000 people that Christ is calling to live together in unity. And, and what our passage shows us is that our, our unity as a church is in Christ alone and nothing else. And we reach unity by modeling the very example he laid out for us when he came to this earth, and when he died on the cross for our sins, and when he was raised from the dead. So Paul, he's, he's going to show us three things in this passage. He's going to show us where our unity is rooted. He's going to show us how we can have unity, what that looks like for us. And he's going to show us what our example is for maintaining that unity. So immediately in verse 1, Paul says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ. So right here uh, from the get-go, he's immediately showing us where unity is rooted. It's in Christ. Jesus is the foundation. He is the source of joy, encouragement, love, salvation, and unity for the body of Christ. If he's not the foundation, a church cannot and will not be unified. It's not possible. A day will come when you're wronged by someone in the church. 
or when you have a decision that's made that you don't agree with, or when someone comes to you with gossip about someone else in the church. And if Christ is the foundation, we will hold grudges against those that wronged us. We will hold unforgiveness in our hearts. We will hold anger over the decision that was made that we didn't agree with. And we'll participate in that gossip and many other things if Christ isn't the foundation. An example for you uh, about that foundation I can use with my, my daughter Alice. She's two now. And this applies to really anyone, any of you that have young children. Uh, Alice's comfort and encouragement being two years old is rooted fully in mom and dad. If she gets scared, if she gets hurt, if something goes wrong, if something's not right, she's looking to us because she knows that we provide for her. She knows we're always there for her. She knows we comfort her. And she knows we take care of her. Christ has provided for us and He always provides for us. He is always there and He has always and will always take care of us. We need to look at Him as our foundation in the same way a child is looking to mom and dad. So Paul, he's reminding the believers in Philippi that they have encouragement from Christ. And Christ's encouragement is exactly what Jordan preached on uh, last week. We can come to Him and He gives us rest. That's encouragement for us. Paul says, if any consolation of love from Christ, the love of Christ should comfort us. We know that the cross of Christ, it offers us salvation from every sin that we've ever committed. And we have hope of eternal life with God's people in God's kingdom. That's our comfort. Paul says, if any fellowship with the Spirit, before uh, Jesus left this earth, he said, I'm sending my Spirit uh, to be with you, to guide you, to have fellowship with you. For God's people, if you're a believer, the God of this universe, His Holy Spirit lives within you and you have fellowship with Him. And when Jesus, when He tells His disciples that He's sending His Spirit, He says, this is going to be my helper, your helper, your advocate, your counselor. And while we can't have the physical body of Christ on this earth, we have His Spirit and that's all we need. And Jesus says that's even better than having His physical body on this earth. Paul says, if any affection and mercy in Christ, how great is God's mercy to sinners? Now, Paul, he's not genuinely proposing these things like there's a chance you might not have them. He's not saying, well, it, you know, it'd be nice if you could find some encouragement or some love or some comfort, but if you can't find it, well, hopefully you'll, you'll find something else to get you by. That's not what he's saying. He's saying these things implying that if you are a believer, you absolutely have them. If you have faith in Christ, you have encouragement from Him. If you have faith in Christ, you have His love. You've experienced His love. You know His affection and His mercy because Christ has given us everything that we need. Imagine, Paul is he's writing this from prison and not like a, the, a Western prison here, Western prison system where you, you get a mattress to sleep on and three meals a day, and TV time, and rec time, and you know that, that sort of setup. This, this is first century prison. It was cramped and cold and dark. It smelled. He had to rely on like outside sources to bring him meals, and if they didn't bring him meals, he didn't eat. He would be beaten, and on top of that, 
Paul is there unjustly. He didn't do anything wrong. He only preached the gospel. But even in the worst of times like that, Paul, he had everything he needed in Christ. And in the same letter from that very same prison cell, Paul pens his most famous words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's point here is that with these things as your foundation, with the encouragement from Christ, with his love, with the fellowship of the Spirit, with his mercy, you have everything as a body of believers to live together in unity. Verse 2 is Paul showing us how we can have unity. Once we are rooted in Christ, there are steps of obedience that we take to maintain the unity uh, as a church. So Paul says, think the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. <clears throat> so what does this mean, to think the same way? Is Paul telling us that we should have the exact same thoughts, exact same views about every single thing ever? Well, no, absolutely not. That's how cults are formed, and that's not okay. Uh, me and Laura, we watched a, a documentary um, a few weeks ago on uh, the People's Temple. You guys may, may or may not know of that. Uh, but the People's Temple um, was a cult, and they ran social and medical programs for the needy, including a free dining hall, and they offered uh, drug rehabilitation services and legal aid services to people. And when you hear that, you think, well, that, that sounds good. You know, what's, what's bad about that? And it may sound like they were doing something good, but their leader, Jim Jones, he had manipulated literally thousands, thousands of people into following him. And there was no freedom of thought. There was no freedom of opinion. There was no personal belief. There was no personal say in anything. And that's a problem. And that problem led to the greatest mass suicide in history. So when Paul says, think the same way, that's not what he means. We still have freedom of opinion. We can disagree, and it can be okay. And we should be having that, and it should be okay. What Paul is saying is that for us as a church, we need to be like-minded and understanding that we... That's it. We are committed to submitting to Christ. No matter what, our goal is to submit to Him individually and corporately. I would say that this unity can best be shown when you have church members who may think differently. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, you know, we can be honest about Scripture. There are passages in the Bible that aren't black and white. There's some great passages in there that are pretty difficult to interpret and know what they mean. So Jordan and I, we could sit down and look at a passage together, and we could both come to two completely different interpretations over one of these passages. And we could both feel very strongly about our interpretation of that passage. Do we get angry or frustrated over, over this disagreement, this difference of interpretation? Do we let it create discord and disunity between us? Or do we submit to Christ together and not hold any anger over it and continue on in the mission that God has called us to? That's unity. Here's another one. Say we get together to vote on an important decision as a church at a business meeting. And say uh, half of the church wants to move forward with this decision, and the other half feels, no, 
we don't think we should go that route. Having a disagreement about which direction to take, that's not what determines whether the church is unified or not. What determines if we are unified is how we let that affect our submission to Christ together. Do we hold on to that disagreement? Do we grudge over it? Do we gossip about it? Do we slander those who may have have voted or felt differently than we did? Or do we submit to Christ and work through it together and find a way to come to a decision? That's unity. That's what Christ is calling us to. We recognize that we are intent on one purpose together, and that purpose is what's most important to us, and it's fulfilling the Great Commission. Souls are dying every day without Christ, without hope, without eternal life. And our mission is to show them and tell them the love of Jesus, what he's offered them through the cross. And if we're not unified as a church, we will fail that mission. Verse 3 and 4, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Paul's saying here, if you do anything out of selfish ambition, don't do things within the, within the church simply because you want it. Because you think it's good. The church is, is made up of much more than just one person. And it's important we remember that. Jesus said, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, this is the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is your neighbor? Well, for right now, for this church, look around. You guys, like you're each other's neighbor. Love them as yourself. That means as an individual, you can say, God made me in his image. I'm valuable to him. And he loves me deeply to the point where he died for me. And then you can look to your neighbor, our church family, and say, God made them in his image. They are valuable to him. He loves them deeply to the point where he died for them. And when we are able, we serve our church family. We love them. We pray for them. We bear their burdens. We forgive. We encourage all the one another's that we see in the New Testament. We do it in unity. And that's the most important part. One one church member can't do this for everybody. One person can't meet everyone's needs. We have to be unified in it. And when we are, the needs will be met. You can think back uh, to, the, to the book of Acts and the early church. Scripture says that uh, they all went and sold all their possessions, everything they had, or, or, and they brought it all together uh, to the church. And everyone that had need, that need was met. That was their mentality, that willingness to give up what they had, all of them, the church as a whole, so that the church as a whole could have their needs met. It takes the whole body of Christ unified. We each play a God-given role here. The main word that Paul uses in verses 3 and 4 is humility. And Paul, he does something very important here, and he says, you want to know how to be humble. You want to see what humility and love for others looks like. You really want an example that will help you be unified as a church body. Look to Jesus Christ. So he finishes focusing on Jesus, and this is it's such a beautiful and powerful section of Scripture. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is one of the most significant portions of Scripture that teaches us about the humanity and the divinity of Christ. So I'm going to teach you guys a a big theological phrase here. Get ready to to write it down if if you're the writing down type. It's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is, is the idea of the person of Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man. This is what we believe as Christians. Jesus Christ was fully man living in perfect submission to the will and the law of God. And he was fully God being the only fitting sacrifice to atone for our sins. Paul's pointing out in this last section that Jesus taking on human flesh in the way that he did shows true humility, true selflessness, true love for his people. So Paul says that even though existing in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, something to be exploited. Some some versions may say grasped. I, I like that. He did not count equality with God, something for him to grasp. First, we need to recognize uh, uh, the statement, Jesus existing in the form of God, because it, it's plain and simple right there. Jesus Christ is God. He's not a created being. He's not an angel. He is God present through all of eternity, seated in the heavens on, on the throne above all things. That's Jesus Christ. And while existing in the form of God, he did not consider that something for him to grasp, something for him to hold on to. This is what happened. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, he, he had the divine form of God. Whatever it was, whatever the whatever it looked like, we don't know, but we know he existed in that form. It was glorious and it was majestic and awesome and powerful and glorifying. And in his love for humanity, he did not consider that form something for him to keep. He gave it up for our sake. He left the kingdom of heaven. He left the throne of God. He left his divine being, his divine presence. He even left his divine knowledge, some of it. As you know, Scripture says that uh, the Son doesn't even know when his return will be. Only the Father knows. He left a part of his divine knowledge, something that that he could have at any point in time, but willingly let goes of. And he willingly took on human flesh. He took on our weaknesses. You know, when when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come in, in a Superman body, right? He didn't come in a body that had super strength and couldn't be damaged. He took on human flesh, just like you and I have right here in this room, a body that could get sick, a body that had limitations, a body that would get tired, a body that would sweat, a body that would ache when used heavily, a body that could be bruised and broken. And he took on that body knowing it would be bruised and broken. It would be beaten. It would have a crown of thorns pushed into its skull. It would be stripped naked in front of a mass amount of people. 
it would have nails driven into the hands and the feet of that body. And he would feel that pain in the very same way you and I would feel that pain today. He took on a body that would even recoil towards the thought of that pain. We see the night before uh, uh, Jesus goes to the cross, the night of his arrest, he had sweat like drops of blood thinking about what he was about to have to go through. His body recognized that pain and death was coming. And even so, he looked to the cross and he said, let's do this. And he did that for us. He humbled himself to death on a cross so that we could be saved from sin. That's the humility that Jesus showed. And Paul is saying, that's your example. Follow that example and maintain unity. Jesus, he looked at our weaknesses with love and compassion. And then he took that weakness onto himself. So we look to our church family's weakness with love and with compassion. And as a church family, we work together to be selfless. We work together to love, to meet each other's needs. We forgive and we forgive much because we have been forgiven much. We don't hold grudges. Grudges, it it will ruin a church's unity. We forgive. We prioritize each other's needs. We stay rooted in Christ together. And this unity is only possible if we're rooted in Christ together. He's given us encouragement and love, His Spirit. We have everything we need. This, like what Paul's talking about here, this really matters. Our representation of Christ is at stake. And that matters. The gospel going forth and souls being saved is at stake. And that really matters. And if we aren't unified, Christ won't be represented well. And I really believe more people will die without saving faith. You know, er earlier I I talked about the Beatles breakup. And the moment that the world knew that the band had split up was in 1970. And some of you, you may remember this. Paul McCartney did an interview. And in the interview, he's asked a few questions. And the first question he was asked is, uh, are you working on any new music with the Beatles? And his response was no. And then he was asked if he foresees any future making music with John Lennon again. And his answer was no. And it was in that moment the world knew that the Beatles were done. And I was thinking about those questions he he was asked and his answer to him, and I wanted to try to apply that uh, to us. Anytime that we don't live in unity as a church, imagine being interviewed and being asked in a similar way that Paul was asked, are you working together as a church on being rooted in Christ together? And then our answer being no. Imagine us being asked, do you foresee a future working to fulfill the Great Commission as Talitha Baptist Church? And our answer being no. That's what our answer is if we're not living in unity. And we can never answer no to those questions. I'm thankful this morning uh, that, that here with my church family at Talitha, this, this passage in this sermon, it, it feels more like a reminder than a rebuke. And unfortunately, there are some churches out there who need that rebuke, but I'm thankful that here, here at Talatha, we are living in unity. We are focused on being rooted in Christ together, and we recognize, I know this, we recognize that the gospel is at stake here. 
Let's never forget that the gospel is at stake. Let's never stop growing together in being rooted in Christ. Let's continue to be selfless for one another. Let's continue to meet each other's needs like we have been. Let's continue to reflect Christ to one another and to forgive. And when we fail, let's continue to recognize it and to go back to Christ together.